Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quietened myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Thanks, Jemima. Um, Before we start, I just want to say how nice it is to see Christina back with us after a long absence. Lovely to see you, Christina. Well, um, in the front of my Bible, I have a butterfly, um, a little blue one, beautiful one, was drawn for me by one of my daughters when she was little. And then on the next page, I've written a quote from Jeremiah Burroughs, who is not one of my daughters. Um, Burroughs was an English Puritan of the, uh, the early 1600s who was for a while exiled to Holland. He wrote a book, well, he wrote many books, uh, one of which was called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. You can find it online. It's a free Kindle version. It's certainly worth reading. But for the moment, just hear that title again, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I'm sure we'd all agree contentment is a jewel, a beautiful and precious thing. One writer says, it sweetens the spirit of the young and lends dignity to the old. You can decide for yourself which side of that line you're on. Um, I've no doubt we'd all agree, though, that beautiful as contentment it is, it also is rare. According to the Advertising Association, the total advertising spend in the UK this year will be £24.7 billion. In the US, it will be $200 billion, and worldwide, $560 billion. It's a lot of money dedicated to keeping people discontent. And that just has to do with stuff you can buy, which is obviously just the tip of the iceberg. We all know the needs of our souls go much deeper than stuff you can buy. In fact, when you add to the advertising numbers other statistics that measure things like loneliness, anxiety, depression, and so on, discontent seems a very accurate way of describing much of our world. But Christian, though we should never be content with the world, we can and should be content in the world. So I'm going to pray for us briefly before we turn to the Lord's word. Our dear Father in heaven, we confess that we are so often discontent, dissatisfied, reaching and grasping for things and achievements that you've not ordained for us. Discontent, though you put all the world in our hands, because you have not given to us the moon and the sun also. Teach us to repent. Teach us to say with the Apostle Paul that we have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Apply your word now by your Holy Spirit to our hearts that Christ may be formed in us. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, this psalm begins a song of ascents. Now, um, if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 120, um, I don't know what page that is on the red ones. Uh, If someone wants to shout that out, I'll repeat it. 622. If you keep your place there and find also Psalm 134. These are the psalms or songs of ascents, the songs of going up. These few pages that you're holding between your fingers 
are an ancient and precious prayer book. These psalms were sung or recited as poems by the Jews of ancient Israel as they journeyed from wherever they were to Jerusalem for the major religious festivals of the Jewish calendar. Imagine thousands of pilgrims, young and old, boys and girls, grannies and grandpas, all walking together. Some maybe just had a couple of hours to walk. Some maybe more than a week's journey. And as they walked together, they sang these songs, these songs of ascents. No doubt if it was happening today, somebody called 50 Puffs or Whiz Daddy or something like that would put them to a rap. So if you scan quickly with me through them, you'll see from Psalm 120, it begins. I live in a broken and messed up world. I long for peace, but I'm surrounded by violent and lying people. Deliver me, O Lord. Then Psalm 121. At the outset of the journey, you can imagine this young pilgrim looking to the mountains, anticipating the days of walking to come. Days of walking in the desert heat at risk of bandits. And so the young pilgrim learns to trust God for the journey through the words of the psalm. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go, all the tribes of Israel, all the people of the Lord, let us go up together to the house of the Lord, to his holy dwelling place in his holy city, Jerusalem. And so the Psalms of Ascents build one upon the other, telling the story of the life of faith, the pilgrim life of God's chosen people. Until finally, Psalm 134. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Now, the very sharp among you will have noticed that Psalm 131, which teaches us to learn contentment, comes quite near the end of this collection of pilgrim psalms. Why? Because its lesson, contentment, is among the most advanced lessons of the spiritual life. Charles Spurgeon said, it's one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. It advances beyond all the songs of ascents which have preceded it for one of the highest attainments in the divine life. And I think we'd admit he's right. Contentment is hard to find, hard to keep. So what is contentment? Well, David gives us a lovely picture of it in verse 2. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Well, I don't know what's normal here in England, but uh, in South Africa, breastfeeding is normal, and probably most moms breastfeed for at least six months, if not 12, uh, or maybe a bit longer. Of course, there'd be some exceptions, and some ladies aren't able to. I'm not passing any judgment on that. I'm just saying it's pretty normal to breastfeed for at least six months. In the ancient Middle East, though, Jewish mothers weaned their children much later, sometimes at four or even five years old. Imagine. A baby is sustained, nourished in her mother's womb for nine months, 
and then sustained and nourished still from her mother's body for a good few years. All she has ever known is her mother's milk. And then one day, without her permission or even consultation, mom withholds. Mom doesn't give any more. Milk is off the menu. It's all mashed up broccoli and carrots now. Now, how many of you remember the first time you tried to feed your baby mashed up vegetables? (laughs) They loved it, right? They probably spoke their first words in that moment. Delicious. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. I think I'll be a vegan. (laughs) Or maybe, as I do, you remember it a little differently. Some of you still have that delight to look forward to. David doesn't picture spiritual contentment as a weaning child. Weaning is tantrums and tears and mashed up broccoli in your hair. Weaning is painful. Painful for the child who does not understand that this is for her good. In her little heart, this is not good. She must have the milk. She must have it. This is what keeps her alive. In her little heart, you're not just changing the menu, you're killing her. Weaning is painful. Not only is she fighting for survival, but her mother is the one doing this to her. Her mother who loved her in her own womb for nine months, her mother who held her and fed her from her own body since she first drew breath, and every day since. Her mother, where am I safe in this world if my own mother turns on me? But mother knows best and so perseveres. Maybe with a few tears of her own, mother takes from her the milk she wants in order to give her the solid food she needs. And so it is with us, friends. The weaning that brings us to contentment in the Lord takes place mainly through loss. Our Heavenly Father withholds what we want, what we think we must have, to give us what He knows we need. These are hard words to say. I I know what some of you have lost. I know who some of you have lost. But they are true nevertheless. Every time your Father in Heaven takes from you what you naturally want, the pain, that pain of loss, becomes the means by which he gives you what he knows you really need. Weaning hurts, but the weaned soul, verse 2, is calm, is quieted, is at rest in full confidence of the Father's perfect love and his perfect provision. And just as a baby can be weaned, so too can we. David learned contentment. He says so in verse 2. I have calmed and quieted my soul. He calmed and quieted his soul. He learned to be content. And we can learn it too. How? He guarded the ambitions of his heart and he stilled the searchings of his mind. Let's think about each of those for a moment. Christian, guard the ambitions of your heart. Well, David was just a boy, probably between 10 and 15 years old, when the prophet Samuel anointed him the future king of Israel. And from that day, the scripture tells us, from that day, from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, 1 Samuel 16. 
David was eventually crowned king when he was 30 years old. That means that for about 15 to 20 years, he knew God had chosen him to be the next king. He had a right, God-given desire, sustained by the Holy Spirit himself, to be king. And he knew Saul was a bad king, and he had opportunities, two of them, to take the throne. We read of the first in 1 Samuel 24. Saul and 3,000 of his soldiers were hunting David in the desert of Engedi. David and his men were hiding far back in a dark cave, and Saul came into the cave to use the loo. David's men urged him in the darkness. This is the day, they said. Now's your moment. Take him out. He's alone. He's unarmed. Come on, David. He's trying to kill you. Kill him now. It's you or him, last man standing. Take your moment, and the throne is yours. But David would not. The Lord forbid I should do such a thing. He rebuked his men, and he forbade them from attacking Saul. You see, David had a good and godly, in fact, a God-given ambition to be the king. But he had a greater ambition, to be obedient to the Lord his God. You shall be king, the Lord had told David through the prophet Samuel. You shall not murder, says the Lord, Exodus 20. Kill him, said David's men. You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield, says David, Psalm 5. I will not touch the Lord's anointed. He stilled, he quieted his soul. He rejected self-promoting ambition and humbly submitted to the law of God. Well, not much later, David and one of his chief commanders, Abishai, crept into Saul's tent one night. Abishai was a mighty and brutal warrior, single-handedly killed 300 men one day. He said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day, 1 Samuel 26. Now let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of my spear. I will not need two. How did David respond? Don't touch him. The Lord will deal with him in his time, whether by sickness or old age or death in the battle. The Lord will deal with him. But as for me... The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David had a good and right ambition to be the king of Israel. A God-given ambition. Do you see that? God, God had given David this desire to be the king and had kept that desire aflame in his heart for 20 years. But David had stilled and quieted quieted his soul by a greater ambition to receive, like a weaned child, only that which his father would give him. David guarded his ambitions, even those he knew to be good and God-given, by always and resolutely keeping them under the word of God. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. 
Guard the ambitions of your heart and still the searchings of your mind. David would not allow his mind to search restlessly into the hidden things of God. He had, he had killed a bear and a lion as a young shepherd boy. He'd been anointed for kingship by the great prophet Samuel, single-handedly defeated the terrible giant Goliath, led the armies of Israel in glorious victories. Yet he was underestimated by his father, scorned by his older brothers, disrespected by his wife, hunted like a criminal by Saul, forced to play the madman, seek refuge with the enemy, hide in caves, scrape out a living in the wilderness for 20 years. And during these years on the run, David wrote psalms, poetry, and many of them tell us exactly the circumstances in which he wrote them. I won't read all of them to you, but just a handful of examples. Psalm 3 is titled, A Psalm of David, When He Fled from Absalom, His Son. Psalm 56, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Psalm 59, when Saul sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. Psalm 63, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Psalm 142, when he was in the cave. And you can read every one of these psalms, these praise of David, written in times of intense trial. And you know what you won't find in any of them? Not one. Why? Why, God? Why have you allowed this suffering? Why am I being hunted like a dog? Why are you doing this to me, God? Not once. Instead, you'll hear a lot of something else. I'll read you just a short bit of Psalm 57. What do you hear in this prayer? A miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. Not a word of bitterness. No restless searchings after why. Instead, childlike trust in the steadfast love of his almighty God, God most high, God who fulfills his purpose for me. Dear friends, when pain visits you, when loss and disappointment and sadness and suffering and tragedy visit you, it is natural to ask why. And scripture does give us glimpses, hints at answers, Through all these, the Lord reveals his grace to us in new ways. He disciplines us. He equips us. Sometimes, maybe he even allows Satan to test us. Yet these are all partial answers. Ultimately, we do not and cannot and need not know the mind of God in these things. And to insist to know is to demand to be equal to God. You must still the restless searchings of your mind. You see, when David said in verse 1, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, he couldn't have meant great and marvelous with respect to any earthly endeavor. In David's mind, in any faithful Israelite's mind, there was nothing greater or more marvelous in an earthly sense than the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Israel. 
the establishment of a temple in Jerusalem, the holy city, and the prosperity of a united kingdom of Israel under the rulership of a good and God-ordained king. There simply was no greater or more marvelous thing imaginable. And David was fully occupied with those. So he could not have meant, in verse 1, I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous. He could not have meant that he didn't occupy himself with the complexities of earthly life. He meant that he understood the distinction between creator and the created. Between God and man. He knew that God had revealed parts of his will and that parts of his will remain unknown. Why is God's to know? And who was David's to rest in? In um, January 2007, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. It had filled one breast, the lymph glands under her arm, and spread to her liver. And the doctors had said at the time, given the extent of it, the speed at which it had spread, we should plan on 12 to 18 months. A month or two later, after further tests, they said um, two to three months at the most. Well, she's sitting just over there, so you know the outcome. You know God spared her. But cancer came again six years later, 2013, I think. Kids would have been five, seven, and nine, give or take, at the time. Against all expectations, Nicolette had survived the first battle, but it was back. She started putting together a book with all her recipes to pass on to our girls so that they'd have something to remember her by. We planned uh, to make videos of her saying various things to the kids. Um, But we just couldn't do it. We didn't have the... We just couldn't do it. But God spared her again. And then about two or three years ago, she developed severe endometriosis and along with it, the, uh, the early signs of endometrial cancer. Uh, I couldn't find my records when I was looking for this uh, last night. I was trying to count. I think she's had 26 surgeries in 12 years. Some of them major. In addition to radiation treatment and chemotherapy and the 15 or so pills she has to take every day. But through it all, we, and she especially, have learned not to ask why. I remember the first time, she'll remember, especially in the early months, being very angry, very bitter. Why me, God? How could you let this happen to me? But the second time, something had changed. No more, why me? No more anger, no more bitterness. I remember one night we were putting the kids to bed. Uh, One of them started crying um, and said, I don't want mommy to die. Well, then Nicolette started crying too. Uh, But after a minute or so, when she was able to, she said, God is good, baby. God is good. Not 
God is good according to my standards and expectations of what a good life is all about. Not God is good and will definitely spare me again. That's not what she meant. She meant God is good even if cancer takes me. God is good even if I die young. Even if God chooses to take me from you so that you have to grow up without a mother, God is good. I want to be here with you. I want you to have a mother who will be here for you until you're all grown up. But God knows best. And whatever he decides, it is good because he decided it. See, the weaned soul doesn't search after a why it cannot have. Not because it's intellectually lazy. Not because of blind faith. The weaned soul doesn't search for a why it cannot have because it doesn't need to. It possesses something far greater than why. The weaned soul knows who. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, says the weaned soul. Guard the ambitions of your heart. Still the restless searchings of your mind. Learn spiritual contentment. Now, friends, you'll remember at the beginning I said that this Psalm 131 is part of the collection, the songs of ascents, the collection of songs and poems for the pilgrim people. So what comes right before and right after it matters for how we understand it. So two final thoughts then, one from Psalm 130 and one from Psalm 132 as we draw to a close. First, Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. Dear friends, does the record of your sins stand against you? You can never, never know true contentment without forgiveness, without your soul washed clean. If that's you, friend, please come and talk to me afterwards. Folks will go through to the other hall for tea and a chat about the cricket. But we specifically reserve this hall for quiet reflection and for soul care. We are here. We have set aside this time. God is here. God has set aside this time for you to come and talk and let us help you take your first steps on the journey of faith. Second and lastly, to my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, look with me quickly at Psalm 132. From verse 2, David swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes, nor slumber to my eyelids, till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. You see, David's ambition was not just to be king, but as king, to restore the worship of God to the center of all of life. I will not rest. I will allow no sleep to my eyes. 
until I find a resting place for the Lord. Verse 8. Arise, Lord, come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. David was deeply ambitious for God's glory. He passionately wanted God to be known and worshipped. He wanted to return the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, to build a beautiful temple for it, a resting place for the Lord, and a place of worship and joy for the Lord's people. But the Lord did not, at least not fully, the Lord did not give David his desire. His ambition went unfulfilled until the son of David, the true king, came and gave David's dream a fulfillment beyond what he could ever have imagined. Jesus, the son of David, came so that no longer would Jews have to travel the pilgrim road to Jerusalem to meet with God in a temple. No, David's true son, King Jesus, came so that all the world could worship God in and through him. He is the one, as the prophet Isaiah said, who would arise to rule all the nations. He is the one in whom we could all, Jews and Gentiles alike, all of us, hope forever. You see, God withheld from David the fulfillment of his ambition. But when the fullness of time had come, the Father gave David's dream a greater fulfillment. My brothers and sisters, how might God be at work in and through the ambitions for his glory that he has given you? What might he do through your unfulfilled ambitions? Guard the ambitions of your heart. Yield them to God and to his ways and his timing. Trust him with all your wise and in eternity your joy will be multiplied beyond measure as you finally see how he brought every, every truly God-given ambition of yours to fulfillment beyond your imagining. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Our Father... Would you teach us to calm and quiet our souls? To rest in you. To trust that you are at work in ways we cannot understand. To give all our wise to you and rest in you. Knowing that every ambition you have given us, you will bring to fulfillment in the way that is right and best and ultimately glorifies you and brings joy to us. Even so, Father, we pray that you would fan into flame in our hearts those ambitions that you have given. Desires for your glory, desires, ambitions to do good. Everything that you have put in our hearts that is of you and from you, fan it into flame to your glory. Amen.